but the ambulance drove away with her in the back and she went to the hospital and I never saw her again. Hello friends, this week on How to Grieve, we have uh, Julia Morin, who is a certified grief educator. She's a grief support specialist, which I do want to clarify that a grief coach is different from a grief counselor. So grief therapy is completely different from grief coaching. Um, And I do want to say that one does not take the place of the other. So grief coaching will not take the place of grief therapy. I know that on the Instagram page, there was a little bit of, I guess, controversy around that, but um, I just want to specify that. Meeting Julia was such a pleasure. She is actually the person behind the Instagram account, girl underscore meets underscore grief. So girl meets grief. I hope that you learned as much as I did from her. Let's get into it. you but um you know aside from my background with grief I've you know been somebody that's struggled with mental health for Mm. many years on and off so this time of year is always (laughs) a little bit tricky for that in terms of like I notice a very noticeable decline in my mood and you know when the days get shorter and it gets dark early and it's Mm -hmm. that's fun seasonal depression (laughs) creeps in oh yeah 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 same. I'm taking vitamin D right now. <laughs> yes. my One of my doctors just said, and they harp on this every year. And I'm always like, yeah, yeah, it's in my multivitamin. And they're like, no, no, you want more than that in the winter. Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll listen this year. Yeah. They're like, uh, take vitamin D by itself, but you have to take it a certain way. Right. And you want and at least 2,000. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, All right. I'm taking notes here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, So what interested you about becoming a grief coach? That's kind of how I found you. Yeah. So I think what probably is easiest is for me to back up a little bit from there and um, just get into a little bit of my background and my personal grief journey before, because the, the grief support path is really relatively new for me still. And that's, that sounds crazy to me still because I'm 34 years old and mm-hmm. I've been um, really on my own grief journey for a, a long time now. But it wasn't until really this this past year um, that something finally clicked in terms of, you know, just wanting to pursue helping people. And I've wanted to do that for a long time. I've always said, I want to help people. And, you know, my full-time job, I'm not really doing that. It's not something I'm super um, passionate about or feel that sort of connection to. Mm -hmm. So I've spent a lot of time like, well, how can I help people? And it was sort of just always this vague, like, I know I want to help people. I just don't know how exactly I want to do that. Yeah. And, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about going back to school to be a therapist or, um, you know, school counselor to work with kids or something like that. And what has just kept stopping me from that is really the financial piece of that right? um, in terms of, you know, the cost and taking out student loans all over again and all of that stuff. So I kept sort of like stopping myself being like, well, what can I do that doesn't require me necessarily to do that? And so I started, um, and I will, I know I said I was going to 
go back into my background and I will do that <laughs> in a second. Um, but I just started to do my own sort of research in terms of, you know, what are there programs and, and certifications and things like that that I can do that don't require me to necessarily go back to school, get a master's degree and all of that. Um, so I'm not sure if it would be easiest now to to kind of go backwards or <laughs> continue with we what can. I'm talking what, about. Okay. Um, what program are you in? So, yeah, I just... Um, I just completed David Kessler's first ever grief, yes, grief educator um, certification at the end of September. So I'm waiting for my official certificate, but I, I completed it. So I guess technically I'm officially a certified grief educator now. Wow. And yeah. Congratulations. So that, thank you. So that was my, my second program. And uh, earlier this year, I my first one that I did was the... Grief Support Specialist Certificate, that's a mouthful, from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. That was entirely an online program. And I did that uh, starting in January and finished that at the end of March. So I am now a grief support specialist and a certified grief educator. Wow. Okay. And was there a particular reason why you wanted to get both or were you just interested in David Kessler? Like what was yeah. the So I did, I honestly wasn't super familiar with David right off the bat. I had heard of him and I was on his email list from, I think some online summit that I participated in that he was involved with. Mm-hmm. And I kept getting his emails about this program and I was like not really paying attention to them. And then I was like, Oh, you know, because I do work full time and Um, so it's a matter of, you know, I have to fit things in like in the morning before work and after work and, you know, during lunchtime, whenever I can and things like that. So I wasn't sure if, you know, timing wise, if, if I would be able to make it work. And I sort of, once I finished the first program, I just found myself kind of missing, you know, just having something to, to look forward to every day. That was something I was really passionate about because I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of times with work, I'm just sort of like, you know, going through the motions and on cruise control, so to speak. And I'm not like super connected to it. So I just found Mm -hmm. myself like sitting there, like, you know, I miss it. And like, it was only my first program was, I think, eight weeks. So it felt like it went by really quickly and then it was over. And I found myself like, there has to be more that I can learn and more that I can do with this. So, um, yeah. So then I, Somebody gave me a nudge in, I'm actually in a Facebook group for the first program that I did. And I was asking people about other programs and they were like, hey, you should really look into David Kessler's. The The registration closes tonight. And I've always, I'm a n- notorious overthinker, which I think goes along with anxiety for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just was like, I just, something came over me and I was like, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to make it work <laughs> And if I have nice. to like, because some of the requirements were like in real time, uh, my first program, everything was like recorded and do it on your own time sort of thing. But this had, you know, live real time things that were, some of them were during the work day. And I just said like, you know what, if it means I have to block off some time on my calendar and, you know, just figure things out. I'm just going to make it work. So I just kind of took the leap and hit like register before I had a chance to overthink it to death. Because <laughs> that's what I do. Yes. Um, I did so the exact same thing with my death doula thing. 
I completely Yeah, relate. okay. So you're doing <laughs> you're doing death doula, which is another thing that um, is fascinating to me. And I didn't even know that that existed until I started my Instagram community and started getting mm-hmm. connected to and following and having people follow me that were death doulas or, or in training. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that this existed. Yeah, I had and no idea so, about the grief coach. Yeah, it's amazing. Just, I think about, so the, I promise we're going to get into we <laughs> my, will. Grief, yes. my personal grief background. We yes. have plenty of time. Um, in my head, that was like the first thing we were going to talk about, but things don't always go <laughs> the yeah. way you, yeah. you think they will. Um, I find that it's easier too to just talk about what you're into right yeah, now. <laughs> right. And then, and then go revisit the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was just, just going to say that as far as my Instagram community, Girl Meets Grief, that was something that I sort of just started on a whim um, Mother's Day weekend. And mm-hmm. um, we will, again, revisit this, but yeah. I lost um, my, my most significant death and loss and grief experience uh, was my mom's very, very sudden death when I was eight years old. Wow. So Mother's Day um, and her anniversary, unfortunately, happened to fall very close together. So May is just historically a very difficult time for me. And I've kind of shifted um, in the last few years, I would say I've made this mental shift of like wanting to do something constructive with all of those feelings rather than yeah. just sitting in them and feeling like helpless and sad. And obviously you're, you're going to feel all of that regardless to, to an extent, but I just got to a point where I was like, I want to do something with this. I don't want to mm-hmm. just like sit in it and, and wallow and whatnot. So um, I just sort of all of a sudden I had no expectations around it or anything. I was just like, I'm going to start because I'm a writer too. It just felt natural. Like I'm going to start an Instagram page and, you know, I can do all this writing and, and just see where it goes. Um, and I, I honestly didn't, I figured like just people that I knew mostly would follow it if anything and like my family and friends, whatever. And so that was um, Mother's Day weekend in May was when I started that. And I also, coincidentally, that weekend was a guest, did an interview with uh, the Got Grief podcast, which is based in the UK. They asked me to come on and it just worked out that we did it Mother's Day weekend. Um, so yeah, I started the Instagram and here we are, what, October? And I'm mm-hmm. getting closer to a thousand followers, which to me, <laughs> I know there are people with way more than that, but no, it's same. just like, yeah, it's way like beyond. <laughs> yeah. It's just way beyond what I expected. And I've connected with so many different people such as yourself. And, um, just, there are just so many, I, I didn't realize there was such a robust community around grief and grief support out there. And that just kind of blew my mind. Like this has been here all along and I didn't even know and I wasn't mm-hmm. contributing to it this whole time. Yeah. So, cause I, I've had this conversation with a couple of guests. Like when you think of grief resources, you think like the self-help aisle of the bookstore mm-hmm. that you don't want to go over there because someone's mm-hmm. standing there crying. <laughs> like right. that is the perspective that like Hollywood or, or we just have. Mm-hmm. And like when I started this, I was like, yeah, exact, exact same thing. Like my friends and family will follow it. Like <laughs> we'll see. And we're almost at 500 and it's like, 
we started the Instagram, I want to say July. We started the podcast mm. August 4th. So that's, it's such insane growth. And it's, yeah, it just goes to show you like the community is there. Right. And yeah, it's just so beautiful to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, I think, you know, the timing of it too, unfortunately, with COVID and just the sheer number of losses that people have experienced around that alone yeah, you're absolutely um, right. has probably brought a lot more people into that community that might not have otherwise um, been a part of it before. Yeah, so that's exactly I right. think that's, yeah, that's kind of definitely fed into it too. And there's just so many people that need that support and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, a lot of what I've learned in my programs is just how there's such a divide between the outside world, so to speak, right. And the expectations of other people around grief versus like the reality of, for people that are actually living it yeah. <laughs> and actually walking through Same that. Here. Yeah. I mean, so for me, um, this is probably a good a good uh, yes. segue into yes. my own yeah personal background and history. So I mentioned that my um, it technically was not my first experience with death. However, certainly my most significant um, in my life to date, and I think that will always be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was eight years old, so this was May of 1995, so 26 years ago, six days after Mother's Day. So Mother's Day was May 14th that year. And um, May 20th of that year, my mom died incredibly, incredibly suddenly, like was not sick. Mm-hmm. Nothing was wrong that anybody knew of. I mean, literally she was here and seemingly healthy and okay and happy. And, um, our last, the last photo I have ever taken of, of her and I together is from that day from mother's day and it's framed still in my bedroom and I see it every single day, but, um, it was literally just there and then gone and all of that. So, to say it that way, people are probably wondering, well, what happened and how, you know, why was it so sudden and all of that. Um, she one night just woke up and was in a lot of pain. And um, so, again, I was eight at the time. I had just turned eight in March, almost exactly two months before. And my sister was 12, uh, going on 13 in a few months. So my mom just woke up in the middle of the night, was in a lot of pain. Um, and my father brought her to the emergency room and for one reason or another, you know, they seemed to think she was presenting with sort of flu-like symptoms. And I don't know to this day, if it was, there were more urgent cases in the emergency room and they just had her sitting there waiting or what it was. But finally my dad was like, you know, I'm bringing her home because she was getting worse and she was not getting medical attention in, in a timely manner. So he brought her home and um, ended up calling an ambulance. And that was, um, that was the last time I ever saw her in, in my life was wow. she was being put into an ambulance in our driveway. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I still, <laughs> and this is just further evidence that there is no expiration date or timestamp on grief because to this day, I'm sitting here right now, you know, tearing up talking about it yeah it never 
it never gets easier to to acknowledge and accept that reality of like that was the last time I would ever see her again and I didn't know that and I didn't even know I was too young to really understand death as a basic concept let alone trying to reconcile my my mom the most important person in my world and in my life just being ripped away from me and never seeing her again so yeah um it's always a very emotional memory to revisit just looking out you know peering out bedroom window and just seeing an ambulance. And um, to this day, I have a hard time. It's one of my triggers is seeing, just seeing an ambulance. (laughs) That's all it takes Um, can be very triggering. Yeah. So um, just to, you know, kind of the cliff notes version, I guess, is what, what they ultimately found out was that she had an undetected adrenal tumor Mm. and it basically, you know, it had, been there and nobody knew it was there because it was the kind of thing if you weren't looking for it or she wasn't complaining of symptoms that they would have looked into it they wouldn't have really known it was there um so it just essentially was getting bigger and bigger over time and it just got to a point where it basically mass produced adrenaline to her heart and her heart just couldn't take that so (laughs) As you can imagine, this was all quite a shock because, again, it, it wasn't, and I don't say this to, there's no comparing with grief, right? right? So I don't say this to minimize, you know, people who knew that their loved one was sick or they knew that they maybe had X amount of time left or they had an illness. You know, grief is grief and loss is loss at the end of the day. Yeah. It's so, just a different kind of awful Right. It's, it's different, but it's not, you know, there's no, my grief is worse or harder or better than yours or, you know, it's just, it's just different. So, um, so in that case, you know, there's just no time to prepare. There's no, um, you don't know that it's coming. And again, that doesn't make it easier, harder, better, worse. It's just like that sudden nature of it. And especially for a child to try to make sense of that. Yeah. And, you know, I just always remember my dad telling my sister and I coming home from the hospital and telling us and just kind of like looking blankly from my dad's face to my sister's face. Like, what does this mean? I don't really understand. And just, they both were crying and my eight-year-old brain you know, not even fully developed yet. It was like, oh, this must mean something bad. And I must, Mm. I guess I'm supposed to cry, you know, like trying to take cues for what, what does this mean and how am I supposed to process and respond to it? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the most vivid memories I have, it's funny because there's not a whole lot that I vividly remember from that time. I don't have a lot of very vivid memories of my mom, but one of my most vivid memories from when she, when we found out that she died, we were staying with neighbors up the street while my dad was in the hospital with my mom. And um, by the way, she was in the hospital for less than two days before she was gone. It was that quick. It was, she went and um, my understanding is that she basically went into a coma, um, I think in the back of the ambulance. And there are still pieces of this that I, you know, try to untangle and and get information as I get older because it's not something I've ever really just sat down with my dad and been like tell me everything exactly what happened yeah um but 
essentially my understanding was that she she went into a coma but the last the last thing she said was was something along the lines of what about my girls or or promise you'll take care of my girls something like that like we were the last mm. the last thing on her mind um the most important thing to her before she left this world mm. and <laughs> that is another thing it's just both heartbreaking and really speaks to the the power of you know a mother's love and that bond yeah um but what where i was going with that before was we were staying with neighbors um my father was at the hospital with her and he came home or came back rather that day you know sat us down outside to tell us and it was a beautiful you know spring sunny day flowers blooming and two things that I vividly remember. One is thinking like, how could this possibly happen right now? Like how, how could this news come where on this beautiful day? Like it's just something about the contrast between, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful spring day and rebirth and flowers and all this stuff. And then getting this news, like the brightest light in my life (laughs) is not, is gone. Um, And the second thing this is the more vivid memory for me is just having this urge to stand up from the table and just run. I just remember thinking that was all I wanted to do was get up and run. And I don't, I don't know where that came from or what I was thinking at that point. Like if I run away, I can outrun this. It won't be true. It won't be real. Mm. Um, But that was just, I just remember this overpowering, just, I want to get up and run. And I, I remember like, it almost felt like an out of body experience. Like I could see myself getting up and running away, but I didn't actually do it. Hmm. So it's just like overwhelming, like eight years old. Yep. And, you know, it was of course very different for my sister and I, and again, not, not to say it was better or worse or easier or harder, but Mm -hmm. we were just at such different points in our lives you know I was still a child and she was like right on the cusp of being a teenager and Mm -hmm. you know becoming a woman and all of this stuff and all of a sudden her mom is gone and and she's facing all of these you know becoming a woman things and it's like oh she doesn't have a mom anymore and she's she's the older sister she doesn't have an older sister to turn to yeah and then you look at my dad's experience, which was, again, completely different from ours of losing his spouse in such a sudden, tragic, unexpected way. And then having to navigate his grief around that while also trying to guide us through our grief as an eight and a 12 year old. Um, that's something that I didn't honestly fully appreciate how hard that must have been until I was an adult. And I thought back to like, my God, I don't know how he did that and how anyone does that. Yeah. Do you remember like watching him go through it or do you think he was more like tough for you guys? He, I, I feel fortunate in that he was always kind of the type that wore his heart on his sleeve and he Mm -hmm. wasn't this like, you know, I have to be a tough guy and I can't cry and I'm going to tell them that they can't cry. He, he was not like that. He is, He is a somewhat intimidating looking Italian man from New York. (laughs) (laughs) However, his, uh, I would say his persona and his appearance don't necessarily match. So Mm -hmm. he's kind of a softy, I would say, um, and maybe not 
not what you would expect just by looking at him. But I do feel like he encouraged us to, you know, cry and express emotions. And he did the same in front of us. It wasn't like it's beautiful. He wouldn't cry in front of us or he wouldn't talk about about her or talk about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the timing of it, because it was towards the end of May, uh, I believe he ultimately pulled us out of school early for the summer and he, his employer allowed him to stay home, you know, be off of work for the entire summer with us. So we had that. And again, I don't really remember much of it because of the age that I was, but I do know that, you know, we had that time together and that was probably really important in terms of our healing process, but also bonding as this new family unit of three and, you know, all of a sudden not having my mom there and trying to sort of create that new normal and, you know, go back to school in the fall and him go back to work and get baby, have babysitters to get us off the bus and all of that stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's so much planning when you're now the one responsible Right. That's so much. Yeah. And he was, you know, I don't want to say a high powered businessman because that sounds kind of lame, but <laughs> he, he did have like a fairly, you know, senior position at, mm-hmm. and he, he was, he was put, put on a suit every day and had a briefcase and that whole thing. And that's what I remember when I think back to, you know, my childhood and him going to work because like he, he was like the businessman and, um, you know, I I certainly know that it wasn't easy, but he did the best that he could and put us first as much as he could being a single f- working father. Mm-hmm. So do you guys have a big family, like extended family? Not really. So my immediate family is just my sister and I. And then um, so I should note going back again that I know I mentioned that my mom's death wasn't necessarily my first uh, experience with death. My father lost his brother and his father to cancer before my mom even died. Oh my gosh. So one of those deaths was when I was, was before I was even born. And the other was when I was a toddler, let's say like mm-hmm. two years old or something. Um, so, you know, before even losing his wife, he had already lost, you know, watched his father and his brother slowly die of cancer, essentially. And, um, on my mom's side and my dad has one, one sister who was still here, thankfully. Um, but those were his two siblings. And then my mom only had one sibling, a sister, and that was my aunt Sharon. And she died also rather suddenly my freshman year of high school. Um, That same year, a friend of mine was hit by a car riding his bike and was killed just before September 11th. (laughs) So that year was just one, one loss after another for me. Um, How old were you? So freshman year of high school. So like 13, no. 15, <laughs> 15-ish, I guess. My math is, my mental math is not so good. That's okay. So yeah, it was, and my, my mom, my mom's sister, my aunt also died very close to my mom's anniversary. So to add mm-hmm. to all of that, you know, went to see her in the hospital and I remember someone saying, you know, they felt like she knew that and she was trying to, you know, not 
she was trying to hold on as long as she could and and not die around my mom's anniversary. And that's what ended up happening. Mm. And then my freshman year of college, uh, both of my mom's parents passed away. Mm. (laughs) So my mom and her entire side of her family are no longer here. So I've had a lot of loss and death and, um, and grief. Yeah. <laughs> and what I've learned, and this took me a really long time, I, you know, there were a lot of years where I really feel like I stuffed things down more so for other people's comfort because it was this, and you still see this, unfortunately, it's a lot of like yeah. people's projection onto you of like, oh, well, that was over 20 years ago, like, shouldn't you be over that by now? And it's like, well, no, that was my mom. Like, I'm never yeah. going to just put that up on a shelf and walk away from it and say, okay, I'm healed now. I'm I'm good. Like, I don't miss her. Yeah. You know, that's just not realistic. And um, you shouldn't. No, right. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, nobody should. It's And it's not about, I wrote this, I feel like just the other day in an Instagram post, it, it has nothing to do with when it happened, how it happened, how long ago it was. Um, There's just this misconception that I will say that as cliche as it sounds, does it get easier over time? Yes, because you're not, you know, there reaches a point where you're not in that acute grief stage anymore, where Mm -hmm. you're not like debilitated by it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't completely knock you over every second of every day. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it it's gone. That doesn't mean that it's over, you yeah. know, it's never, it never goes away. Yeah. Um, and that's and not what I to always say, say, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say that it, it's not to say that it won't knock you off your feet ever again. <laughs> right. That's an important point too. <laughs> because like, yes, it does get easier, but there are some days that you're going to have that memory. You're going to smell that smell. You're going right. to, it's going to be that day and you didn't realize it. And Mm-hmm. it's going to kick your butt. <laughs> Which reminds me of our kindred spirits, Walgreens yes. <laughs> connection that we made on Instagram. <laughs> so that was, you just reminded me of that. Like, I don't even remember when that was. It was many years ago. Um, and I don't know what your particular story was, mm-hmm. but for me, it was like, just went into Walgreens to get a couple things, whatever. And I just all of a sudden was like standing there in an aisle sobbing mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my God, this song. And I don't think I even fully remembered the song or, or f- knew the connection at the time. Mm-hmm. I just, it knocked me on my ass. And I was like, what is happening? And I was just standing there sobbing and I don't remember if I put down what I went in for and just walked out or what, but I was like, holy crap. Mm-hmm. And I went home and, you know, told my dad and I remember him being like, your mom played that song all the time. Your mom loved that song. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my Lord. <laughs> so, you know, to your point, it's like, sometimes all it takes is some kind of memory or or connection, or like you said, a smell or something that you see. And it's like, a freight train (laughs) running you over all of a sudden. Yeah, that's so true. I think I wrote a poem about it because I was taking a poetry class at the time. (laughs) But Yeah, I I did that in college too. And I wrote a lot of poems about my mom and and grief. (laughs) It's so helpful. It's so helpful. But yeah, I think especially if you're a writer, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've 
for as long as I can remember, I've been writing, you know, when I was younger, I'd write stories mm-hmm. and little poems and all different things. And, you know, just had imaginary friends and would make <laughs> up all these <laughs> stories and things. Do you remember but their names? I think, so I had, I should say, a singular imaginary <laughs> friend. His name was Mac Toe, as in M-A-C, like a Big Mac, mm-hmm. and like a toe on your foot, <laughs> Mac Toe. No idea where that came from <laughs> to this day. Um, and my dad will tell me, you know, he'll tell anyone, it's embarrassing, but he, apparently I would, you know, play in the woods and, and talk to him and I made up, I don't remember the names, but I made up like an imaginary family for him <laughs> and, and I would you know, talk to them and my dad would listen and he's like, oh, I wish I had written down all of their names. (laughs) So um, I had a very vivid imagination, but, you know, I feel like I sort of turned that into a love of writing and creative writing and all of that at some point. So that's beautiful. (laughs) It's so sweet that your dad paid so much attention. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm sure he would tell you that it was far from easy. But um, when I look at, you know, so many people out there, unfortunately, who go through something like that and lose a parent, especially at a young age, Mm -hmm. are not as fortunate to have a an existing parent who is present and able to care for them, you know, and that's where I know that I'm lucky that he was able to sort of pull himself together and do that Mm -hmm. um, as hard as it was, because, you know, he didn't, turn to drugs and alcohol and, mm-hmm. you know, completely abandon us, which I know, you know, happens to yeah. people. And then it's like, you have really nobody at yeah. that point to, to walk you through that phase of your life. Yeah. And he like um, shared his grief with you. Like it wasn't yeah. just like him pulling himself together and you're, you're kind of left alone, you know, in, right. in that aspect of your life, he, he was there grieving with you. Right. And he, you know, we went to therapy. He, he took both of us to therapy and we did that together. But then we also, from what I remember anyway, kind of did that separately mm-hmm. um, as well. And I'm no stranger to therapy. Yes. <laughs> it started at a very young age and it's something that I have no shame about. And I've seen, you know, many different therapists over the years. And, you know, unfortunately, another challenging thing with childhood loss and grief is that years later in your adult life, it suddenly just starts popping up in all of these unexpected ways. And you can't always identify it at the time as, as it being grief per se. Yeah. Um, but for me, it, you know, that's what happened. I, I've published essays on this, which I can share links um, with you I would love too, that. but I found myself dealing with some medical issues and in the hospital and procedures and surgeries and all these things several years ago. Um, And all of a sudden, and I had never, mind you, been in a hospital as a patient, but I always associated hospitals with death because Mm -hmm. that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. My mom literally drove away from my childhood home in she didn't drive away, but the, yeah, the yeah. ambulance drove away with her in the back and she went to the hospital and I never saw her again. So for an eight-year-old's brain, um, unfortunately, that created this sort of narrative in my head that, oh, people who go to the hospital don't come back. Mm. So when I found myself as a patient in a hospital bed, that was my first thought was like, 
well, what if I don't go home? What if this is it? <laughs> and that sounds morbid, but it's like it's and, the reality, right? And, and right, you're being triggered from something you didn't even know was a thing for you, right? And the and then you're in a tug of war with the logical side of your brain that's an adult and is saying to you like, no, you know that's not true. Mm-hmm. But you still have, you know, for me, it was like, I still have that eight-year-old little girl inside of me who will always be there, Mm -hmm. who just wants and needs her mom and will never (laughs) have her or see her again. Yeah. Um, The tug of war between your logical adult brain and that, you know, that child that formed these thoughts and these beliefs at an age where your brain was still developing, Mm -hmm. it's like really hard to separate that. And so... That was the first piece of that. And that was that was the least of my problems, as I found out, was just that that negative association with hospitals and and death. But then all of a sudden. It was like that tidal wave we were talking Mm -hmm. about or that freight train where I was just completely inconsolable in the hospital. And I didn't realize what it was at first either. I was thinking it's just that general anxiety about hospitals. Um, I've never been in this situation. I've never been in a hospital bed myself. I just thought I was like completely having a nervous breakdown about all of it. Mm. And of course, all the nurses are coming in and trying to console me and thinking I'm just, you know, worked up and nervous and oh, it'll be fine. Everything will be fine. So the first time it happened, I don't feel like I fully connected the dots of what was happening. And then it happened again. And I had this epiphany that it was once again a trigger that was causing this. And in this case, it was the plastic patient belongings bag that they give you in the hospital Mm -hmm. to put all of your stuff in. I was having a flashback and didn't even realize it initially to my mom's death. And I suddenly remembered seeing the, her patient belongings bag in our house after she had died when my dad brought it back to the house. So from there on out, it was like, I don't want to see that bag. I don't want that bag anywhere near me. And I finally, um, I found, I hadn't been to therapy at that point in quite some time. Mm -hmm. And I finally got to a point where, you know, it happened a couple of times and I was like, okay, I need to address this with a therapist because this is, you know, it's come up more than once. And it's, you know, if I have to go to the hospital, I don't want to be like a complete inconsolable mess having a panic attack because that's what it was. I was, I was having panic attacks Mm. was what I later realized. (laughs) So, um, So then I, you know, sought out a therapist and did some trauma therapy around that with her, just, you know, sort of that exposure therapy, so to speak, and talking about it and trying to desensitize yourself a little bit so that it's not such a overwhelming, powerful thing every time it happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really just before COVID. And then (laughs) COVID came along and you know, made everything virtual. And Mm -hmm. we sort of tabled that because, and I appreciate my therapist saying like, I don't really think this is something we want to be digging into when we're not in person. Right. Because a couple of times that we did, it was very, very, very emotional. And I was hysterical. And it's like, (laughs) you don't really want to be doing that over a computer or over the phone. So, And it's harder for them to notice um, 
like body cues. They're little, they're right. little things that they can see in person to like mm-hmm. not let you reach that point. But when you're right. virtual, it makes it a little harder. Right. Ugh. Yeah. So that's just a little, um, a little insight into, I guess the your background. Sometimes unexpected. Well, just the ways that childhood loss can present itself in adulthood. Because I think mm. a lot of people going back to that misconception of like, oh, that happened. You know, the looks people give you. Yeah. Oh, that happened over twenty years ago, and you're still, you know, like having such a hard time around the anniversary. And for me, it's like a double whammy because it's anniversary and Mother's Day generally within a week or so of each other. Mm-hmm. So like, I f- always feel like May as a whole is just sort of a wash for me. And I just yeah, kind of like we were talking about seasonal depression. I feel that like drop in my mood, mm-hmm. literally like May 1st. I'm like, okay, it's May. I'm going to be, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like in a black hole for a month, basically mentally. Yeah. Your body remembers. Um, Yes, exactly. Yep. Your body remembers. And I have that book, The Body Keeps the Score, which mm-hmm. I have not read yet. But it's <laughs> all like all these things, you know, your body and your brain stores all these memories and trauma. Um, so I got off track of what I was saying. So I think going back to the, you know, the misconceptions around you should be over it after a certain amount of time. It's like, well, people don't recognize that if you have had a major loss as a child, there's a whole other layer to that where it comes up in all these different ways in your adult life that you can't really necessarily anticipate or plan for or brace yourself. Um, And, you know, another thing for me was like planning my wedding and getting married uh, three years Mm -hmm. ago was like, yeah, it was. And I think I knew it would be hard, but when I actually like, was in it and, you know, trying on dresses and doing all these things and, and she wasn't here. It's like, nobody can make that suck less, right? Like no one can say anything to you that's going to make that not hurt. Yeah. So, um, I just think there are so many ways that as much as people would like grief to be this neat, tidy little process, that's like this linear straight line point a to point b you do it you finish you're good you move on with your life it just does not work that way and um there's just again so many different ways that it can and does and will keep coming back up in like these sort of circular patterns throughout the rest of your life yeah so how have you learned to have grace for yourself when those things happen Um, I think, honestly, it took me a really long time to to stop putting so much pressure on myself as far as other people's perceptions and opinions and expectations of me and of, you know, what grief should look like. Mm. Um, And I know I mentioned earlier, like, I I feel like I spent a lot of time pushing things down and and not being nearly as open about it as I am now and just yeah. sort of going along with what everyone else wanted it to look like and internalizing those sort of misguided opinions and and comments from other people like, oh, well, it's been this many years and, 
you know, I had to take a step back from that and be like, this is not about anybody else at the end of the day. It's about me and it's my journey and not theirs and my life and not theirs. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't owe anybody anything, really. Like, I don't owe an explanation, a justification for anything that I feel. Right. Um, so I think a big piece of giving myself grace, as you said, was like, just taking a step back from all of that external noise and other people's opinions, expectations, whatever it was, and just being like, you know, they haven't lived, and and anyone going through grief could say this about people outside of their grief, they haven't lived your reality. Mm. And even me talking to somebody else who's grieving, I haven't lived their their reality. I'm living mine. You know, I don't, I don't walk in their shoes. So I can say, oh, I lost my mom too. And and I can relate to people in that way, or I've experienced grief too. And we can talk about the, the different ways we've experienced that. But at the end of the day, you know, nobody's ever gonna live my reality and my journey, and I'm never gonna live theirs. Hmm. So I think that's an important piece of it too, is recognizing like this is you know, grief is as individual as a fingerprint, as I think something David Kessler says. And, you know, every person's grief experience is as unique as that person is and is also as unique as their relationship was with the person that they lost. So you can't just like paint this sort of, you know, there's no like blanket statement or one size fits all that you can just kind of apply to everybody and every every person's grief experience because they're just so different. Right. Yeah. And that's something that we're learning too, right? Like with this huge community is every single person, every single follower is completely different. Everyone has a different story. Right. And a different way that they've processed their own grief, which is part of the reason why we're having this conversation, right? Because it's almost like, if you don't acknowledge it, it will eat you alive. <laughs> yeah. Which that's, that's, it sounds extreme, but that's literally what happens. No, it's true. And um, it, it's funny, I keep referencing back to David Kessler because I've spent <laughs> 12 weeks <laughs> up until recently, you know, training with him and learning from him. And I honestly learned so much. But another thing that he, says is you have to feel it to heal it. Mm. So, you know, as much as that sounds like, oh, it's like a a corny rhyme, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's true too. It's another way of saying what you just said. Like the longer you suppress things and push them down and ignore them and, you know, tell yourself I shouldn't be feeling this way or this person said this to me and maybe they're right. And all of these external things that you internalize, all that does is kind of delay your your grieving and your healing process and just set you back further. And essentially you're at that point letting other people kind of dictate your journey and your your own healing, really. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about, okay, so you, if this is wrong, feel free to correct me, but from listening to you, um, you spent a long time suppressing those things. So what did mm-hmm. that look like? Because you would have been in your teens, in your 20s. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think I spent a lot of time trying to sort of blend in because, you know, I remember when my mom died going back to school and feeling like very self-conscious and very aware of the fact that I was now the girl without a mom. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, that was my identity. That was what everybody knew me as. My school sent out, you know, I came from a small town in Massachusetts, um, small little rural town. Mm -hmm. So, you know, smaller school and they sent out a letter to let everybody know that, you know, and in hindsight, obviously that was done with good intentions. Like they wanted people to know and it was a small town and, um, but I just remember coming back to school and feeling like I'm an outsider now. Like mm-hmm. all of my classmates and friends are carefree eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, whatever at that point who have their moms and have their intact families. And here I am, like, I don't, I feel like I can't relate to anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, I felt like my childhood, which up until that point had been pretty idyllic. It was like, you know, grew up in a beautiful house on a beautiful street with conservation land and streams and played outside and the whole thing. Um, But I feel like there was a kind of a line drawn in the sand of like, okay, my innocent childhood is over now. Mm -hmm. Like my childhood innocence is gone. I essentially felt like I learned things that I never wanted to know at that age. Mm-hmm. I should have never had to to know or experience or learn or feel that early. Um, and I just felt like I was surrounded by, you know, kids my age that just had no idea what that was like. And it was, it's honestly the first experience of, I guess I would say jealousy that I remember feeling, to be honest, mm-hmm. is like, you know, that, that child, um, feeling of like, it's not fair, right? Like this isn't fair. Why did they all get to have their moms still? And I don't, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my family? And obviously at that age, you can't really make sense of the fact that death happens to everybody and everyone, nobody's exempt. And at some point everyone's going to experience it. But to me, it was like, I could only see from the vantage point of where I was standing right then and there, which was I'm eight years old and I don't have a mom anymore and everybody around me does. Mm. And so what does that mean for me? And, you know, how do I continue on being a a child when I feel like I have this burden of all of these like adult things all of a sudden that I, I had no exposure to before. And all of a sudden it's just dropped in your lap. Mm. So I think it was, you know, it started pretty young in terms of going back to school and wanting to sort of blend in and not wanting to be different and not wanting to be just the girl without a mom. And, um, you know, I actually years ago, I had an essay published in a chicken soup for the soul book, which I'm it's staring at me from my bookshelf, a copy of it <laughs> right now. Um, but I remember writing about it. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, that I was, didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my um, my writing accolades. Mm. <laughs> one of the more notable ones. But, you know, it was like I, read those I submitted day. it just. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I was. I don't even remember what year it was. Um, I can send you a copy of that essay too. But yes, I, please. 
I just remember writing about that feeling of going back to school and thinking like I have that scarlet letter, so to speak, on my chest and and everyone. And maybe this was a lot of just self-consciousness on my part, but just mm-hmm. thinking like everyone's looking at me thinking there goes the motherless girl, you know, mm-hmm. like it just. And that's very much made, um, like children do that. Mm-hmm. Like they, their whole perspective of the world is them. Right. Yeah. And I think I carried that forward, you know, into middle and high school in terms of trying to find that balance between not acting like it didn't happen and not, you know, ignoring the fact that it was a reality, Mm -hmm. but also not wanting it to be like the sole focus of my life and something that defined me. I think that that is still and will always be sort of a a delicate balance of like, Mm -hmm. this is such a huge part of my life and who I am. You know, there's, there's no way that you can experience something like that, especially at a young age and not be impacted by it Mm -hmm. in really big ways and not have it impact um, your development and who you become and how you see the world and all of those things. But it's like this, this balance of wanting to acknowledge what a big part of you it is while also acknowledging it doesn't define who you are. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard distinction to make. Yeah. Cause it feels defining. Right. It feels like this is my life before this happened and here is Mm -hmm. my life now. Yep. And here are all of the things that I now have as a result of this trauma. Right. And that's that kind of line in the sand I mentioned where it's like, okay, here's my, you know, idyllic life in my small town, in my little house with my family before. And then it's like, you know, screeching breaks and like, okay. And then here's everything after. And there's definitely two very distinct, it's almost like two different lives it feels like yeah. like you had this this life and all of these things you probably took for granted honestly mm-hmm. like especially as a child you know that's just it's just what you know you have two parents you have your home you have this that and the other thing and you don't really think twice about that because you're too young you know like mm-hmm. you why would you yeah <laughs> until it's taken away from you and then especially at an age where you're not even really aware of the fact that it can be taken away, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just have this sort of naive perception of, oh, this this person will always be there. And you, you know, I don't think I really even, like I mentioned earlier, understood death as a really basic concept at that point, mm-hmm. let alone like my mom yeah. <laughs> dying. Yeah. That's so interesting. We just got done talking about that in our um, group call today for the my death doula course because we talk a lot about using the word death mm-hmm. when we're working with clients. Um, and today we discussed how I, I want to say that it, it could be life-changing for some people, like just the normalization of talking about death. 
from a young Mm -hmm. age. Like someone brought up like, do you know anyone who works in schools or like brings that Yeah, we talked about that in one of my programs too. Yeah. Like the, the concept of like, should this be taught? Should death and grief be taught in schools? Like mm-hmm. outside of, you know, a child who actually experiences it and maybe they go talk to the guidance counselor, like should all children just be exposed to that? Mm. What do you think? I mean, I think it would certainly be helpful to have sort of a, and th- I think the important thing is that it needs to be on their level of perception, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of a, I think something that you have to be careful with where you're not throwing overly um, adult or like graphic or, yeah. you know, thing, things that kids can't really make sense of or process. I mean, I remember when my mom died, people giving me or giving my dad, you know, books that were supposed to be for me. And they were like, I just remember I have this image in my head of this book that was like kind of, I don't know if poetic is the right word, but it was sort of comparing death to nature and, you know, everything dies. And I just remember being like, it just didn't really resonate with me at that age. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's important that, especially when you're dealing with kids, that things need to sort of be relatable for them and Mm -hmm. and on their level so to speak and something that they can understand and and make sense of and I'm going to do a quick shout out to um Shanice who's on Instagram um she she's grieving it is the name of her her page and her website um but she recently had a book come out called grief on the playground which I think is a great Mm -hmm. example of that I haven't gotten my hands on a copy yet I need to order one Um, But it's from what I've read of the description, it's basically, you know, a little girl on the playground at school. And I think it's a teacher. um, Hopefully I'm getting this correct. It's she's talking to the girl about grief and explaining it in terms of like a roller coaster ride and how it's this roller coaster of emotions. And so I like tearing up. That's so beautiful. I know. I know. I really need to get I need to get my hands on a yes. copy and, and read it. Grieving um, it on Instagram. Grieving it. Yep. Okay. Shanice. I, I don't want to mess up her name. Shanice McLeish. McLeish, I believe is okay. her name. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, she has a website. I got a t-shirt from her that says normalize grief. Um, so she's been another, you know, great person that I've connected with on Instagram. And I'm honestly so grateful that I've found so many amazing people and resources and, you know, Mm -hmm. other accounts and podcasts like yours and all of these things that, again, it's like, how did I not (laughs) know all of this was just out there waiting for me? Yeah, same, same. Um, Do you have plans for what you want to do with all that you've learned this year? So my goal... At the moment, what I have been kind of working towards, um, once I sort of got to a place where I thought, okay, I can do some, you know, training and things without going back to school and see where I can go with that. And then I had actually at one point started a life coaching business that never really went anywhere. And part of that was that I don't think my heart was fully in it. And I was sort of like having this disconnect of, Mm -hmm 
a little bit of imposter syndrome and feeling like life coach has become this sort of trendy thing that I feel like a lot of people say I'm a life coach and they don't really have much to back it up. (laughs) So I did not want to be one of those people. And I felt like, you know, I was coming at it from a place of, oh, I have all of these different life experiences. And like, I feel like I could really help people and and benefit people in that way. But I wasn't um, super on board with like doing train actual training and certification for it. Mm -hmm. And I got mixed messages. Some people said like, oh, people don't care. Like they'll still work with you. They don't care about your credentials. They're not going to ask you to like produce documentation of you know, your education, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then other people that were like, no, you need to legitimize yourself. If you're going to do that, you need training. Like you can't just come at it from your personal experience because that can potentially be problematic if you (laughs) don't fully know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, I started that with the best intentions and, you know, started a Facebook page and all this stuff. And then it really just didn't go anywhere. And I felt a little bit defeated about that at first. Mm -hmm. And I quickly kind of flipped that and said to myself, like, I don't know when I had this light bulb go off or when I had this epiphany, but I was all of a sudden was like, I wonder if grief coaching is a thing. Is that a Mm -hmm. thing? Like I could, maybe I could do that. Cause I just felt like life coaching was way too, um, way too broad, not specific enough. And I needed like kind of a a lane (laughs) that was a little bit more specific. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, I think it was again, kind of around Mother's Day and my mom's anniversary. And I had the wheel sort of turning in my head of like, well, what can I do with all of this and all these emotions and things that are coming up? Like, what can I do that's positive with, with this? And that was when I started the Instagram account. Um, But at that point, I had already done my first grief support training program. Mm -hmm. So I think the light bulb in terms of, you know, oh, maybe grief coaching is something I could look into pursuing was a little bit earlier than the whole Instagram thing. But um, yeah, I just I don't don't know where it came from. But all of a sudden I had this like the heavens opened. It was like grief. It was like somebody was, I don't know, maybe it was my mom, like some divine intervention of her being like, Hey, listen to me. (laughs) But all of a sudden it was like grief coach. Like I just heard it in my head. And I was like, I wonder if that's even real. Like, is that a thing? So I just started Googling and sure enough, I found, and I think that's how I came across my first program was I Googled it and was like, are there trainings for this? is this a legitimate thing? And I found websites of people that were grief coaches. And all of a sudden I was like, I just felt so much more like I had a specific direction and purpose, Mm -hmm. which I hadn't felt in a long time. It was just like, and ever since then, just left and right, people keep telling me like, this is your calling. This is Mm -hmm. your purpose. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And I've been kind of aimlessly looking for that for so long. And it's just, again, been this vague, like, I want to help people. I want to help people. And all of a sudden it's like the path just presented itself in front of me. And it was like, all right, I'm, I'm going with it. I love that. Uh, It's so, I, I just, (laughs) sorry. I'm thinking of Schitt's Creek. I love that journey for you. (laughs) I love that journey for you. Love that journey for you. (laughs) That's not my journey. Um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's like kind of my journey because I'm 
studying to become a death doula. But yeah, I would love to hear more about that, to be honest. I'm so fascinated by that. Yeah, I it's funny because like as you're speaking, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to look into grief coaching Um, because a lot of it is just reconciling your own relationship with death. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, so I too struggle with my mental health and for me, in my perspective, death is almost like, like I see it as a relief. Mm. Um, and that is accompanied by the fact that my mentor who passed also struggled with her mental health. Mm. And so she was diagnosed, I want to say she um, died of ovarian cancer that had spread to her brain. Um, Mm. And she was diagnosed, I want to say, end of January, February of 2017. And by June 25th, she passed. So it was it was a very fast diagnosis, very fast illness. She had she was claustrophobic, so she struggled a lot mm. with radiation and getting MRIs done and all of that because they have to. I don't know if you've ever um, seen how they do radiation, but they make a custom fitted uh, like mask that goes over the area, and it, because it was her brain, it was like a mesh mask that went over her face. Mm. Um, So I, at the time, was overseas. So um, it was, I would get like a day, a week of Wi-Fi to be able to call back home. And when she was diagnosed, it was like an emergency call. Like my, my mom and my sister called and they were like, Tiffany needs to get on Wi-Fi like right now. And then from then on, it was like, I was just waiting to get the next call that she had passed. And I saw very like small blips of her deterioration, but it was very fast at the same time. So uh, it's very interesting to go through that. And then now they're like, you need to dig up everything that you think about death because you cannot put that on someone else. So, like, there will be people that I work with that want to go through treatment, right? But, like, for me, I've told my husband, like, if I ever get diagnosed with anything, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Like, I saw what mm-hmm. that did to her. I can't do it. But, like, if I'm going to be a supportive role in someone's death, I have to deal with that myself. So, I have to deal with the fact that that is a death that I witnessed and this is my relationship to death, but I have to go in there as a blank slate, like asking questions like, Oh, Mm -hmm. so I I see that you are having a hard time with this particular medication. Um, Have you talked to your nurse about that? Like uh, I, I see that your family is kind of talking about, you know, starting hospice. What are you thinking? How do you feel? And it's that complete, like you, you have to be almost nothing. <laughs> you have to go into the space as a supportive role at, without right. any opinions, without any preconceived notions about death. 
and they on purpose stir all this stuff up in you. So (laughs) going through the class, you're like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know that these are the things that I felt because you, you just like, don't think about it, right? Like in Western culture, you're just kind of avoiding death constantly. Yeah. And we've talked about, you just kind of reminded me, you know, in my programs, how we talked about, you know, similar things in terms of coaching or being in a grief support role, as far as, you know, when is it appropriate and helpful to bring your personal background into it versus you know, when does that come across as sort of self-serving and like, Mm -hmm. oh, this happened to me too, or, oh, I want to talk about myself because it's not about you, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it's like this, this weird um, line of, you know, obviously you have this personal background and wealth of experience and knowledge, but at the same time, you don't want to project too many personal things onto somebody else who's coming to you for support Mm -hmm. for their own (laughs) grief or whatever they're dealing with. Um. And it's so even that's definitely tricky. What you were saying before, like that idea that you have to let go of what everyone thinks your grief should look like. Mm-hmm. And it's being that for someone else. Like, okay, right. what do you think? <laughs> yep. What do you think your grief and should look like? It's witnessing that is so mm-hmm. much of what David Kessler, you know, talked about in that program was there is no fixing it for somebody else. There is no taking it away. There is no magic words that you're going to say that they're just going to be like, oh, I feel better. I'm cured. I'm healed. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's about, and so many people, this is what they're looking for. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in their lives can't provide this is just witnessing and listening to them and not trying to solve it and fix it and um, throw platitudes at it and they're in a better place and you know like nobody wants to hear that no (laughs) like I want them to be here I don't want to hear that they're in a better place you know like this is the good place yes with me yeah yeah so I think there's just a, a still a real lack of um I guess, literacy, like emotional literacy, if that makes any sense, around grief. Like people, just the average person doesn't quite get it unless they have lived it and a lot of people haven't. Or again, even if they have, their whatever they went through is so different and individual to them Mm -hmm. that they can't necessarily apply that to what you're going through. Um, because everyone grieves differently. Like even you look within a family that's experienced the same loss, every person in that family is going to grieve differently. And that unfortunately, you know, David also talked about this, like a lot of times um, when there's a death within a family and people grieve differently, that can lead to divorce and all these mm-hmm. other family issues because simply because people are grieving differently and you expect everyone else to grieve the same way that you're grieving and that's just not how it works. So then Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you kind of start pointing the finger like, well, why are they crying less than me? Or what did they love that person less than I did? Or Mm. it's all very complex. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And complicated. And it's almost like you, if you're the person who's grieving, sometimes you expect people to just know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm raising my hand if you could see me. <laughs> um, 
I've definitely been guilty of that. And, you know, it's helped. I, I've joined groups on Facebook and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a motherless daughters group and a general grief group where it helps to to post things and kind of communicate with like-minded people because these are the kinds of things that if you post it to like your own Facebook, it's probably going to just fall into a black hole and people are going to be like, what is she talking about? Mm-hmm. Or they're like, um, oh, here's this post again. Right. Yep. Right. Um, but when it's, you know, sort of a like-minded community, it feels mm-hmm. a little bit more comfortable to put, but I remember posting something along those lines, like, you know, why don't people just know that you need support around say an anniversary? Like, why don't people just reach mm-hmm. out more, you know, things like that. And especially when it's been as long as it's been for me, specifically with my mom, I'll find myself being like bitter, like, well, I didn't hear from anybody mm-hmm. on her birthday or like, unless I, you know, if I post something to social media, people will comment or whatever, but it's like we, you expect other people to remember all of these dates and these milestones and check in with you. And it's like, I think, unfortunately, at some point you have to lower your expectations of other people a little bit because it's just it's just a recipe for disappointment and yeah. <laughs> being bitter and being like, why can't people like be on my level with this and why do I have to? explicitly tell people like I need this or I want you to do this Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like for you it's this huge memory it's this day that the all these things happened and for them Mm -hmm. it was a Tuesday and they found out about it later Mm -hmm. that's so true I think everyone else just kind of goes on with life and it doesn't stay with them, obviously, the way that it stays with you because it's not their life and it's not their loss. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't stop you from having this sort of, I guess, somewhat distorted expectation or, you know, Mm -hmm. thought process of like, well, why didn't they think of this and reach out to me? And it's like, I guess you kind of have to take a step back and be like, okay, other people are living their own lives and, you Mm -hmm. know, they probably don't have a note on their calendar to remind, you know, maybe in the first year or two when, when it's still new and it's still in that acute grief stage Mm -hmm. kind of. Um, But I think beyond that, it's like everyone just goes back to their life and you go back to yours, but it's not the same, you know, it's, you're kind of, um, Anne Lam- I don't know if you're familiar with Anne Lamott, but she's one of my mm-hmm. favorite writers. And I always go back to this quote from her. Um, I, I don't know the whole quote verbatim, but the, the part that I always quote is she compares grief to learning to dance with the limp, mm. which I think is so beautiful. It's like you have to kind of learn to carry on and, and carry that loss and grief forward into your life and learn to integrate it. And not like make it disappear. Like that's not the goal. It's not to make it disappear mm-hmm. and go away. It's just how do you live alongside it? And how do you learn to dance with with a limp and with part of your heart missing, really? I mean. Mm. That's so well that's said. That's what it, yeah. That's beautiful. I will end with a question I like to end with because that was so beautiful. <laughs> I want to just kind of allow us to 
sit in that. Um, but I like to ask, what is um, something in your life right now that's bringing you joy? Um, I honestly feel like my path and journey with with grief support has brought me a lot of joy. I, you know, like I mentioned, I sort of have been in the, you know, day-to-day grind of my full-time job and really busy and stressed with that for a long time. And um, especially with COVID and all of the isolation and being home a lot more and just feeling sort of like crawling out of my skin a little Mm -hmm. bit uh, with all of that. I just, again, felt like all of a sudden this path like opened up in front of me and it's just given me such a feeling of purpose and passion and, you know, just posting to Instagram and, you know, communicating with people there and starting dialogues around these things. Mm -hmm. Um, It brings me joy to feel like I am helping other people. And, you know, I've gotten messages from people just saying like, your posts have helped me so much and thank you for normalizing these feelings and Mm -hmm. thank you for making me feel less alone. And I think we all know deep down that we're not alone. Like we're not the, whatever we are feeling, even though it's unique to us, we're not the only person that's ever felt that. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other people at any given time that are feeling, whether it is, you know, depression, anxiety, sadness, anger, fear, all of these things that we feel in general, but also specific to grief, Yeah. just to know. And again, I think we all know this at like a core level, but it's, it's easy to forget when you feel like you're just like alone in your own emotions, Mm -hmm. just to, to know that there's this community and there are so many other people that are feeling and going through similar things and are willing to kind of put themselves out there and help other people and help people feel less alone and isolated. Um, While it can be, you know, obviously grief is not, grief and death are not fun topics. I would never say that it's fun. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But it brings me joy because I am helping people and that's all I really want to do Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. It's so, yeah. So that's specific. I don't know if you were looking for something no. <laughs> separate from <laughs> from grief, but no. it certainly has just brought me a sense of again purpose that I yeah. I felt like I was lacking for a while, and I just feel like I was sort of on the the edge of it and on the cusp of it for a while. But it just took me some time to like take that leap and for the path to kind of open up and be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. (laughs) Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you for being on the show today with me. All right. Well, thank you so much. That is the end of this week's episode, folks. If you want to reach out to Julia, she is at girl underscore meets underscore grief on Instagram, girl meets grief. Um, And I hope that you guys have a wonderful day wherever you are. Take care. Original music by Kyle Porter and editing by Emmanuel Cerate. Take care, y'all.